You can be seated. I invite you to open in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And toward the end of our service, we're going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper together of communion. <clears throat> and so we've got these elements here, the wafer and the juice for you. They're to your right. If you failed to pick that up and you'd like to participate with us today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've confessed him as Lord and Savior, and you'd like to partake with us today, you can get up right now. It's okay. Nobody's going to look oddly at you. You're not interrupting anything. You can get up right now and get those elements. They're at the, the black table over to your right. <clears throat> Psalm 51. Psalm 51, I believe the text will be behind me. Follow along as I read aloud from Psalm 51. It says this, <clears throat> excuse me, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. <clears throat> the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. Early last week, a powerful storm dumped nine inches of rain in Vermont. You might have seen this in the news recently. New York Times said some of the worst destruction the state has ever experienced. One man drowned in his home. Thousands lost homes or businesses. The damage is likely to run in the tens of millions of dollars to repair. And we see this all the time with hurricanes and whatnot. It's just, it's just fresh on our minds. It just happened just days ago. <clears throat> A major cleanup has begun in the state uh, capital, uh, Montpelier. Debris from uh, floods and homes and businesses fills the streets while a coat of river mud covers the roadways. The damage in the town was worse than Hurricane in Irene 2011, many believe. 
this town and its residents, they have an extremely long road ahead, and we want to lift them up in prayer, right? But the cleanup will take months, and the city will never look the same again, as many of the buildings will now be condemned and have to be rebuilt. It's a tragedy, right? <clears throat> now, I come from, live 40 years of my 43 in California, and we see a lot of destruction from fire damage. But I know in, in more wetter regions like where we live here, there's, there's this flood damage and seeing just this mud. How do you clean all that up? I mean, where do you even start, right? Now, in this region, tragedy, we, we get a picture of how the Bible describes our own hearts, soiled, muddied, defiled, not by mud, but by sin. And as challenging as the cleanup will be for, for Montpelier, how can we clean up something that we can't see with our eyes, we can't touch with our hands? We know what it is when we see the behaviors in 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 form, but we can't wrap our arms around something like sin to say, I'll, I'll get rid of the sin, right? The tighter you try to get a grip on your sin, the more you see it just pouring out in other places of your life. You cover one hole of the dam and another hole opens up, right? <clears throat> How do we handle this? How do we wash away the filth of sin from our hearts? We're in a series right now called Soul songs, soul songs. This is our third week now. We've seen Psalm 36. Last week we saw Psalm 130 and Psalm 131. Last week we saw the psalmist writes from the depths that God delivers out of the depths. Well, what about when those depths are caused by our own doing, by our own sin, by our own defilement, by our own sin? How do we wash away the filth of sin from our hearts? From our hearts. It's thick, friends. And this psalm is written, <clears throat> it's not a pretty psalm. We see it from its introduction that it's introducing a, a scene that's very tragic, very sad, and very troublesome when you read about it in 2 Samuel. But our big idea is this this morning in the filth of sin, God's merciful love cleanses our souls. In the muck and the mud and the mire and the defilement that our sin causes, and even sin itself is muck and mire and defilement, it's the merciful love, the compassion of our God that brings the restoration and hope and cleansing that we all desperately need. Something that we can't wrap our hands around, God says, I've got a handle on it and I can cleanse it from your life. We're going to see this four ways this morning from Psalm 51. First of all, we see a cry for mercy. We see a confession of sin. We see a prayer for cleansing. And we see a sacrifice of humility. First of all, a cry for mercy, verses one through two. Now, we, we see here actually in the Hebrew Bible, you'll, you'll know that that introduction is actually the very first verse. And again, it says, it's a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. You may be asking yourself, you may not be, be that familiar with the Bible, especially your Old Testament history. <clears throat> you may be wondering what, what, what scenario or scene is this talking about? Well, this is speaking of David, the same David that slew Goliath with that 
sling and that stone, right? The giant Goliath. You've probably heard references to that all the time. It's this David that was a shepherd boy who wrote things like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want, right? This is the same David, and this David became king. And, and David, the scripture says, is called a man after God's own heart. We see that in 1 Samuel 13 and Acts, actually, chapter 13. The apostles refer back to David as a man after God's own heart. So he had a heart that belonged to God, that was loyal to God. 1 Samuel 16, the, the prophet Samuel, he's told that, that he's supposed to go and anoint a new king over Israel. Saul had been a bad king and he was ruling and God says, I've rejected Saul. I want to have a king who rules over my people, a king that has a heart that's after me, a man after my own heart. And God told the prophet Samuel, I want you to go to, to, uh, to the house of Jesse and I want you to go and I want you to anoint one of his sons as king. And, and Samuel looked around at all these fine looking young men and thinking, oh, one of these guys has to be king. And, and God says, Samuel, you're looking at the wrong thing. None of these guys are going to be king. God looks at the inside, the inner person, at the heart, while man looks at the outward appearance. And he's saying there is that David is a man after my own heart. David showed the quality of his heart and how he served Saul as king, even though Saul tried to kill him, knowing that David was the future anointed king. Saul said, I got to get rid of this guy. I want my family to be king. And so Saul tried to kill him multiple times, but yet David remained loyal to Saul. It's amazing to see that, even though Saul tried to kill him multiple times. In fact, Saul declared in 1 Samuel chapter 24, he says, David, you are more righteous than I for you have repaid me good by sparing my life. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. David demonstrated that he was a man after God's heart with integrity and uprightness. And so God rewards David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the great covenants and promises that God makes to bring forth the Messiah who would rescue humanity. God says, David, there's going to be a king that comes from your line. You say you want to build me a glorious temple, a glorious house for me in Jerusalem, God says. But Nathan the prophet comes to David and he says, God wants to do something for you, David. You want to do something for God? God is going to build you a house, David. He's going to build you a household that would reign on the throne of Israel forever. And David returns that promise from God with gratitude and humility and thanksgiving. And he offers up a beautiful prayer, thanking and praising the Lord. Why? Because David was a man after God's own heart. But we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. David the king is at home in Jerusalem. And in the spring when kings are supposed to be going out for battle, David is at home. And from the roof of his home, David sees a young woman, a beautiful young woman named Bathsheba bathing. And he was told by one of his servants that this Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite who was off fighting a battle for David's kingdom, Israel. David summoned Bathsheba, even knowing that she was Uriah's wife, and, and he slept with her. She became pregnant by David. And then David ordered uh, his military commander, Joab, to, to send Uriah home. And, and thinking that David could cover this up, this scandal, David tries several times to get Uriah to go home, to be with his wife, to cover up the pregnancy by him. But in his integrity, Uriah remained committed to his brothers on the battlefield, and he refused to go home to be with his wife. 
So David sends Uriah back with sealed orders in his hand to have Joab, uh, the commander of the, of the army, to send, him, send Uriah to the front lines and then draw back from Uriah so that he would be killed in battle. Joab, unaware of David's motives for the orders, follows obediently. Uriah is killed. In fact, Uriah is murdered by David through these orders that he gave. And it's reported back to David. David then allows Bathsheba to mourn for her husband for the customary mourning season. And after the mourning period was over, he takes Bathsheba. She becomes his wife and she bears David a son. Clean, tidy scandal. What a cover-up. And David thinks no one's going to know what's going on here. Everybody still knows me as the shepherd king that has a heart after God, right? But what had happened was a flood came in to David's heart. That sin brought mud and filth and defilement into David's life and into his heart. What would David do about that? No one knew about it, but God knew. So through Nathan the prophet, Nathan comes to David and he tells a fictional story to David to teach him a lesson of a wealthy man who had many flocks and in entertaining a visitor, this wealthy man, he doesn't use one of his own flocks to serve a meal for his friend, for his guest. Instead, he steals a precious little ewe lamb from his neighbor and kills it for the meal that he serves to his guest. Now David, formerly the shepherd boy, he is infuriated by such injustice. Nathan reveals, David, you are the man. The Lord has given you everything you could have ever dreamed of, and he's made his covenant with you. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? David is pinned to the wall. He realizes, this is about me. I'm the unjust one. I'm the sinful one. I'm the guilty one. Murder, adultery, lies, deceit. What is David's response? What is David's response? This is crucial for us to think about it. In our moments of of our sin and, and filth, what do we do when we're confronted with the reality of our behavior and our condition? David says to Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. Now, this is remarkable what Nathan does. He replies back to David and he says this, the Lord has put away your sin, David. You shall not die. Friends, it was clear in the law of Moses, adultery, murder, deceit, These were sins and and, and law-breaking that's worthy of death. And yet God says to the prophet uh, prophet Nathan, David, you shall not die. How in the world can this be? How can it be? How is it that David is allowed to live We get a picture, we get one statement from David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, but we get a whole psalm that David writes, and I I don't think that he's writing this to be shared throughout the whole world. I I believe this is in his moment, a song that he writes to express in his heart this soul song of confession. He says in verse 1, 
Have mercy on me, O God. This is a plea for mercy. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. You see what David's doing there? He's not saying, but, but don't you remember, God, all that I've done for you? Don't you remember how you anointed me king because I was a man after your own heart? Don't you remember how I slew Goliath? Don't you remember how I did this and that and I battled for you and I fought for you and I, and I honored Saul even though I knew I was going to be king? Don't you remember that I wanted to build a house for you? David says, no, I am coming before you, Lord, and I'm making my plea before you. Have mercy according to your steadfast love. David says, Lord, I appeal to your compassion. I stand only on the abundance of your loyal and gracious love toward me. He says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. Just take it away. Blot it out. Cover it up so that it's gone from my record, that it's gone from me. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from my iniquity, my misdeeds, and my guilt. Deliver me from the punishment of death that I know I deserve. Cleanse me. Purify me. Pronounce me clean as a priest does because I've been so defiled because of my great sin, the mud and the filth and and the dung and the horrific nature of my sin has filled my heart. I can only count on your mercy. And so David has a plea for mercy. Friends, the only home we have in the filth of our sin is the loving character of God. It is our only hope, our only hope, not your track record, not your pedigree, not your wealth, not the color of your skin or your cultural background or your allegiance to some earthly country. The only hope that you have in the filth and muck and mire of your sin is the loving mercy of a loving God. He alone is our hope. Sin is a much bigger deal to God than to us. I tell you what, friends, sometimes I, I look at sin and I even find myself sometimes excusing my own sin. But God hates sin. He judges sin. David wasn't trying to, to bring sin down and say, God, come on. I mean, come on. What other, other kings have done this, right? I'm not doing anything else that another king has done. I'm certainly not as bad as Saul, Saul did some terrible, terrible things. I'm not as bad as Saul. David doesn't do any of that. He doesn't bring his sin down. He realizes that God sees his sin as so serious, and he trusts in the loving God alone. God hates sin. He judges sin. One day, he's going to put an end to sin. He doesn't take sin lightly, but we do. I do. You do. We take sin lightly. Sometimes we redefine the gospel into thinking that God just kind of poo-poos our sin. He just kind of sweeps it under the rug. Friend, that's not the gospel message. The gospel message is that in spite of our sin, his grace and his love is greater. We can't take sin lightly. There's a debate in our home sometimes. I enjoy overhearing it with our kids. Sometimes they don't even know that I'm listening to them. There's a debate in our home. Who's the stricter parent and who's the more lenient parent, right? They have this debate, right? So if they want to ask us something, something special that's outside the plan, who do we go to? 
Who's the more likely one, Laura or me, dad or mom, that is going to be the one that says, oh yeah, we'll, we'll let you do that. In fact, I think we had this conversation just the other night about school and things. And sometimes dad can be the fun one, but sometimes he could be the strict one too, right? And sometimes mom's the one that's going easy on us, and sometimes she's the one who's hard on us. Friends, you can't get away with anything with God. You don't get away with anything with God. David is not getting away with murder here. This sin is extremely serious. David had no excuses. He had no hiding. He couldn't figure out, well, maybe God will be lenient this time. He says, Lord, I sinned. There are no yeah, but. His only plea was, have mercy on me, for God. Uh, have mercy on me, O God. Don't forget your love for me. Friend, in the filth of sin, your only plea is, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy according to your great compassion. The second thing we see then is, is first we see a plea for mercy. Secondly, we see David's confession of sin. Confession of sin. In verses 3 through 4, David confesses his deeds. He says, I know my transgressions. I know my violations of your perfect law, God. I know my sin. Look at the personal pronouns there. I know my transgressions, my sin. I sinned. Friends, there is no cleansing from God's grace if we don't own up to what we've done. We've got to own up to what we've done. My sin, I did it. We hate standing alone under guilt, don't we? So what do we do? We make excuses. We compare ourselves to others. Yeah, I, I, I did this, but come on, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as her. We want to CYA, if you know what I mean, right? We want to cover our behinds. We'll do anything we can to get out of trouble for our sins. I'll never forget working for a plumbing wholesaler. Great company. But there were times where I would make a mistake. I'd bring it to my manager, and my manager would say, well, well, well you, you didn't really make a mistake. We don't want to tell our customer that we, we made that mistake. Let's see how we could twist it and kind of spin it a little bit so it doesn't make us look quite as bad. That's not what David is doing. He says, my transgressions, my sin, I'm owning it. I can't bring it down. I can't lessen the degree of it. I can't get out of trouble for my sin. I know that I've done it and I'm owning up to it. I'm not just presuming upon the grace of God that he's not going to take, take it as a big deal. One of my favorite theologians, in fact, I got a, a picture with him. If you'd like to see it, ask me. Uh, his name's R.C. Sproul. He's a, he's a great theologian. He passed away a few years ago. But in his teaching on the holiness of God, he describes teaching a college course on the Old Testament. He had 250 students, and they all agreed at the beginning of the semester to the syllabus that he had. The first assignment became due, and about 25 students out of the 250 were late in turning in their assignments, and they were kind of shy and embarrassed about coming into class because they knew, oh my gosh, we're late on this. I should have been more diligent, or you know, I, just, I don't know what we're going to do about this. I'm going to fail the, the assignment. The assignment came due, about 25 students were late in turning in their assignment. And they asked for grace. They asked for more time. And Dr. Sproul, he granted it. Now, the midterm came up, the second assignment, and 50 students now were late and asked for time on the, uh, on the second assignment. Dr. Sproul, he granted it. 
The third assignment became due, and about 100 students just waltzed right into class, casually, late with their assignments, assuming that they would get another extension. They've got it two times before, and now they've invited others with them. We could all be late together. Dr. Sproul, he doesn't care. And you know what Dr. Sproul did? It was the end of the semester, and he gave them all an F. And one of the students says, that's not fair. That's not fair. And Dr. Sproul says, fair? You want fair? Fine. The other two assignments you were late on, you get Fs on those two. I'm taking away the extensions, right? You get an F on the other papers. And, and Sproul teaches the lesson that his students began to presume upon him and upon his kindness that he had to be gracious, that he was just kind of overlooking. They weren't willing to own up to what they had done. They become very casual about their lateness, their tardiness. They thought that it was no longer a big deal. They wanted to just get out of it rather than owning up to it. What's the lesson? Sproul says, friends, that's what we do with God. That's what we do with God. We want to lessen the degree of our sin rather than owning up to it. We presume upon God's kindness and his grace and we think, well, it's not fair, Lord, that you're going to discipline me or that you're going to condemn me for this sin. Look at them over there. They're getting away with murder. Friends, God takes sin seriously. He takes it seriously and David takes it seriously in this soul song. He says, I transgressed. It's my iniquity. I disobeyed. It's my sin. But he doesn't just confess his, his, his uh, violations of the law. He doesn't just confess his sin. He confesses also his condition. His condition. Look at what verses 5 and 6 say. It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. And David's not referring to some sort of sinful act that his mom was taking a part of when she conceived him. No, no, no. He's saying, from the moment that I was conceived, because I am just like the rest of the human race, it's not just what I do that makes me a sinner. It's the very condition of my heart, the very condition of my soul. And so he goes on to say, you delight truth, not just on the outside, not just in my behaviors, not just in my trespasses and transgressions, transgressions, just confessing what I've done wrong. But here I am, Lord, and I'm confessing I am wrong. I am wrong. Friends, we've got to realize that and acknowledge that sin isn't just what we do. It's a part of who we are. It's a part of who I am. Lord, I stand before you and my sin doesn't just show up on the outside on what I do, but Lord, I stand before you and I know that I am defiled from the inside and it comes out all the way deep down into my heart. Friend, you must know this. You and I, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Let that truth sink in for a moment. It's the only hope for cleansing. It's brutal honesty with our deeds and brutal honesty with our condition. It's like Isaiah says in Isaiah 64. It's the people of Israel, they're trying to cover up all of their disloyalty against God and they're trying to cover it up with, with religious deeds by more sacrifices, you know, uh, more adoration of God's house, the temple. And, and you know what Isaiah says? He says it's just like trying to clean yourself with filthy, filthy rags because it's the condition of our hearts. 
If David said, I'm going to try and do this for God, I'm going to try and cover up my sin with this or that or more sacrifices or, or whatever I could do to just scrub myself off, David would have been trying to achieve foolishness. Because your condition is sinful, just like David, just like me, just like you, all the best you could do is if you're trying to cleanse your sin yourself with your own good condition, your own good-natured heart, you're just taking filthy rags and trying to scrub the filth away. We can't do it. We can't do it. There's a confession of sin. Have you confessed your sin to your Lord? Oh, get honest with him today, brutally honest. Thirdly, we see then hope. We see a prayer from David for cleansing, a prayer for cleansing. He says, Lord, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. In fact, I'll be whiter than snow. I heard that's something that falls here in Northern Virginia from time to time. I haven't seen it yet, but I I heard it does, right? I'll be whiter than snow, pure snow as it's just fallen. What's he talking about here? Purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was used, uh, we see in Exodus, to spread the blood of the Passover lamb over the doorposts of the, of the house of the children of Israel while they were in Egypt. We see hyssop also used as the tool to spread cleansing water on the skin of a healed leper or on material to cleanse it from defilement of mold and, and diseases. By the priests. We also see that the priests on the Day of Atonement, they would use hyssop to sprinkle the blood of goats and calves on the articles of the tabernacle to cleanse and make atonement for the sin of the people. What David is saying here is that, Lord, I need your atoning work, that work of, of blood sacrifice to be applied to my heart to take away the disease, the leprosy, the defilement, the filth of sin in my heart and life. Purge me. And when you do it, I am trusting in you. See, that's, that's where confession turns to faith. Lord, it feels filthy. It's bigger than I could ever manage or ever I could take care of. So I trust in you that your cleansing power truly has what I need to wash me, to clean me, to take it all away. And David, in this moment, I can imagine the tears falling down on the scroll as he writes, I'm crying and weeping, but let me hear joy and gladness. I've killed Uriah. I've shamed Bathsheba. And this little boy that was born to us is about to die as well. All I hear is mourning and death, but you can restore joy and gladness to my ears. So hide your face from my sins. Friends, this is the hope that we have to have in in the gospel. The hope that we have to have in the good news about what Jesus has done for us. Standing in the midst of our filth and muck and mud and sin, we have to look and say, Lord, show me your light again because I'm in a dark place. It's a cry of faith. He says, create in me a clean heart. Take this filthy, muddy, dirty heart that lusted for Bathsheba, that was hanging out at home when I should have been out at battle, that looked upon her, that knew that she was Uriah's wife and took her to be my own and then impregnated her and then murdered her husband. That's a filthy, filthy heart. And so, Lord, I'm trusting in you. Create in me a clean heart. This is the answer. This is the good news I love what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, 
That person is a new creation. The old heart has gone and a new heart is given. Friend, if you feel today, I don't know what to do with this old heart of mine. We're going to sing a Keith Green song in just a little bit. You may not know who Keith Green is. Look him up later. But I love what he says. He has a song. He says, oh, Lord, create in me a clean heart. But he also has another song that says, take this old heart of mine and wash it and make it new. That's what we ask God to do. And he says, I'll do it for you because I'm a compassionate and gracious God. Friend, I don't care how dirty or how old or how dead or how cold or hard your heart is. God can give you a new heart when we ask him. A soft heart, a clean heart, a heart that loves and adores him. He says, don't cast me away. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me because it was taken away from Saul the king through his disobedience, but restore to me the joy of your deliverance, the joy of your message of rescue, the joy of your Yeshua, your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Let that be my story. I don't want this, Lord, to be the end of my story. This filth and this sin, give me a story of redemption. Friends, that's why we sing. That's why we're here every Sunday morning, because our God has given us a new story, a story of healing and hope and salvation and deliverance through his gospel, through the good news of Jesus Christ. We are people who are honest about our sin. Husbands, I want to ask you, I want to ask you, has God given you a broken and contrite spirit with your spouse? Do do you humbly own up to your own sins and and your faults toward your spouses, toward your wives, and wives toward your husbands? Are you too proud to admit that you're wrong or too proud to admit that maybe you're lost, right? Sometimes that happens too. Parents, one of the most powerful things that that I've seen done for my kids, and I've been far from a perfect dad, but those moments when I could see that they're just starting to grasp that God is gracious and compassionate, it's when I've admitted to them when I've been wrong and I've sinned against them. This is the way our kids and others can see in us that the only power that can truly cleanse our filthy hearts is the merciful love of God, but it starts through confession It starts through trusting in the mercy of God. It starts in asking him to cleanse us and it manifests itself in a broken spirit and a contrite heart that God will never despise. In the filth of sin, God's merciful love cleanses our souls. Now, you may be asking yourself, that's all fine and good. But I know the law of Moses, and I know that David deserved to die because of his sin. It's true. It's true. Someone deserved to die because of David's sin, yet David didn't die for that sin. He didn't do it. So is God unjust? The apostles, they looked back on on sins like this, and they said, no, God was just. Why? How? How was God just in doing this? I want to share one more passage with you. 1 John chapter 1 Verses six through nine. John writes, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth, right? David says you desire truth in the inward parts in Psalm 51. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And now listen to this. The blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. 
You see, this is where God's mercy and his justice are perfectly met. It's in the blood of Jesus. It says, I won't kill David because I'm going to crush my son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That's why you don't die. That's why I don't die. That's why I'm not condemned to hell forever. In fact, Romans 8.1 says, whoever is in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. I stand here today and I have the hope of God's mercy and his love and compassion on me because of the blood of Jesus that cleanses me from all my sin. But if we say, verse 8, 1 John 1 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Friend, don't be deceived today. And the truth is not in us. But if we do this, just like David, if we get on our knees in full honesty, if we confess our sins, God is faithful in his love and mercy, his cleansing mercy. And he's just because he's crushed his son in your place and my place to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, what does this mean for Monday? We're going to take a moment right now, actually, to practice some confession as we close our service. And this is what I'd hope for you to do. Worship team, come on up. This is what I want you to do. I just want you to think about this phrase. In my sin, and fill in the blank, in my sin, Lord, just like David, I cry out to you. I plead to you for mercy. I confess my sin. I call upon you to clean me and I ask you to create in me a broken spirit and a contrite heart. I cry out to you, Lord, and trust in your salvation and your cleansing power through your son, Jesus Christ. And so I want you to take a moment right now. We're, we're going to sing, uh, actually right now, right? Create in me a clean heart. And as you do, I if you feel comfortable, just close your eyes and take some time right now to reflect before the Lord. Lord, how have I sinned against you? Maybe, maybe you know it. Maybe you came in here and this has been a burden and a weight of guilt that has been heavy on your shoulders. Tell God about it. Your behaviors, your attitudes. We're living in a world that's full of all kinds of sinful pleasures and lusts. Je Jesus said it's, it's not just enough that you don't commit adultery. He said even if you look at a woman with lustful intent in your heart, you've committed adultery before the Lord. Even if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder before the Lord. Friends, it's not just what we do on the outside. It goes all the way down deep into our filthy souls. Take a moment right now to think, how have I sinned against you, God? And call out to him as we sing this song and say, Lord, I